Good morning, Woodside. It's my privilege and pleasure to be here this morning with you. Billy sends his greetings. He arrived back at his house at 3.30 in the morning, so he's probably not coming to church this morning, but please do keep him and the rest of the team in your prayers as they recuperate and recover from that long uh, trip and uh, all the ministry that um, they were able to accomplish. I, for one, am certainly looking forward to all of the stories that they have brought back with them. It's been quite a number of weeks since I've been able to be here with you, and it's exciting to be here once again to open God's Word with you. Have you ever lived in expectation of something wonderful happening in your life? Yes. Yes, I sure hope so. Sure hope so. As I was putting the message together, I just, my mind went back to years and decades ago after filling out application after application to various universities, waiting at the mailbox. You remember? Waiting at the mailbox because we didn't have email back then, you know, where the crust of the earth was still cooling and dinosaurs were still walking on the face of the earth. And we still had rotary dial phones, if you remember. Though. Anyway, um, <clears throat> waiting for the mail to come because you're hoping one day one of those universities would let you know, you're in! Yes! I got in! Or after interview after interview after interview, you wait by the phone day after day after day. You're hoping that that company that you put your hope in, that company you've dreamt of working for, will call you and say, you're hired. Yes! You're hoping. I was talking to Mario, our drummer. He's living in great anticipation. It's been almost nine months. Ah, you know what I'm talking about. He's about to be a dad, and nine months of either pain or pleasure or, or wherever in the spectrum you find yourself when you're pregnant, all of those hopes and dreams are about to come to fulfillment as you anticipate the coming of the birth of your baby. Wow, what hopes and dreams and, and, and joy and satisfaction when you can finally hold your baby in your hands. That's anticipation. That's joy. That's a moment of celebration. I hope you live in that kind of anticipation. That's kind of the anticipation that the Jews in the first century AD were living in. They have been waiting thousands and thousands of years for this promised one to come. They were waiting in great expectation because they thought and they believed with all of their heart that that promise would be fulfilled in their lifetime. They lived with such great anticipation that this promised one, this Messiah, would come and would set everything right, that they, He would restore the fortunes of Israel and restore Israel to its former glory. They were waiting for that day with such anticipation because they looked forward to a day of salvation full of joy and hope and celebration. And if you turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning, Peter stands before this crowd that we've been looking at over the last few weeks and he tells them, you don't have to look anymore because that promised one has come. The Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. Let's try that again just in case. I, I know you're still waking up. So the promised one has come. The Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. Jesus. Amen. Amen. Stop looking. He's come. And that's what we've been looking at over the last few weeks, the last two weeks specifically, 
as we are in this sermon series called Rethinking Family. And in Acts chapter 2, on this day of Pentecost, when these people were praying, they were filled with the Spirit, and there was an audible and a visual representation in the room, and it created quite a stir, and people from all around Jerusalem came confused, looking for answers, trying to figure out what was going on. And Peter, remember Peter, scaredy old Peter stands up in the middle of that crowd, and he says, men of Israel, I have something to say. And what he says is that the Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus. And I want to, this morning, take a look at what Peter says. It's the heart of the sermon. Last week, we looked at the prophecy from Joel that God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh and that what they were seeing and experiencing was a fulfillment of prophecy. But this week, we're going to look at the heart of the message that Peter delivers, starting in verse number 22, that just 50 days earlier, they had killed the promised one, that they had gotten it all wrong, that they were looking for someone who had come, but they missed it. And instead of welcoming him, they had crucified him. And Peter has this humongous task in front of him to try to convince these very same people in the very same city who had crucified him. Perhaps even in the shadow of the temple where the chief priests and the scribes had handed him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. To convince them that this man named Jesus from Nazareth wasn't the criminal that they thought he was, but that he was in fact the Messiah that he said he was. And perhaps you're here this morning, and I want you to listen to the words of Peter with fresh ears this morning. But perhaps this morning you're here, and, and you know about Jesus, and you celebrate his birth because we celebrate that at Christmas. And we celebrate his resurrection at Easter. Oh, those are all wonderful things. But Jesus really hasn't made any impact in your life. But we're very glad you're here. Because perhaps today the Holy Spirit would op open your ears to hear and your eyes to see that Jesus is, in fact, who he said he is. Perhaps you're here this morning and you, you've been to coming to church for a long time. But over the years, perhaps the love has grown cold because, well, Jesus really hasn't made such a remarkable impact in your lives. Maybe your lives are full of what other people and Facebook are saying. Perhaps that carries more weight in your life and in your thinking than perhaps what Jesus has said in his word. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you're here this morning too. Because if we sit with anticipation, and if we sit with prayer, God will speak to us, and He will demonstrate to us that He is who He says He is. And as we look at this passage from Acts chapter 2, we'll see that God glorifies His Son through His Spirit. Because for the first time in history, Peter now will declare that God has exalted Jesus, this crucified man from Nazareth, to the highest place in the universe because of His life and death and resurrection, that God glorifies Jesus through His Spirit. Now, as we look at this passage, I see three ways in which God glorifies Jesus, and the first is that God revealed Jesus' glory. So far in Acts chapter 2, we've seen 120 people in an upper room in Jerusalem. They're praying. It's been 50 days since Jesus had been crucified, and they're waiting in eager anticipation of the fulfillment of what Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And on this day, the day of Pentecost, 
The Holy Spirit comes. It comes with an audible sound and a visual sign. And people who are in this room start to speak in foreign languages. And it's such a commotion that people who are here from all around the Roman Empire, they rush to the source of the sound. And they come into this room and they're confused. They're looking for an explanation. And Peter starts to provide for them what's happening. And what it's interesting is, is that Peter now connects the coming of the Holy Spirit with Jesus of Nazareth. And as we look at this, is this text, in fact, this whole sermon, I want you to notice how Peter connects God the Father explicitly with every event in the life of Jesus. Notice verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Let me just pause there for just a moment. Peter says, God, God the Father, attested Jesus to them. What's the word attest mean? Have you ever had anything attested? No? Nobody? Never bought a house? No? Oh, boy. We're going to have to work on you. Attesting means to formally certify. To formally certify. It's when you go get some, a notary to sign on the dotted line that that's your signature. It's to attest to the fact that that's you. God, or Paul Peter here says that God attested, formally certified that Jesus is who he said he is. And he did it with three words, mighty works, wonders, and signs. I used to think, why did God waste all this ink to write three words? I mean, aren't they all the same thing? Well, they're not. Mighty works comes from a Greek word from which we get our word dynamite. And it speaks to the internal power that Jesus had to do the supernatural. Jesus had within him the ability, the power to do the supernatural things that God wanted him to do. That's what the word mighty works means. The second word is the word wonders. It doesn't refer to the power. It refers to the results of the power that Jesus had when he exercises that power. And so we know all throughout the Gospels, Jesus exercised that power to make the lame walk, to make the blind see. Those are wonders, wonders. Then the third word is the word signs, signs. Signs refers to the purpose behind why Jesus did the mighty works and wonders that he did. At the end of the Gospel of John, the Apostle John writes that Jesus did many more things than, than I have written, but these things are written that you might Believe, and that by believing you might have eternal life. There's a purpose why Jesus did the wonders and signs that he did. It was revealing, as Peter says here, it was revealing, it was formally certifying that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Messiah. And so, Peter tells them now in this verse, I don't know if you noticed this in verse 22, that these things were done in your midst. It was known to you. Meaning, this wasn't done in a closet. It wasn't done in a remote island off the coast of some uh, Pacific nation. 
This was done in your midst. All of you know about it. You heard it or you experienced it. This isn't news to you. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, there's a story of when Jesus was walking down the path and he was coming upon the city or the town of Nain. And out of the, out of the town were coming townspeople carrying a coffin. And in the coffin was the only son of a, a widow. And when Jesus saw the widow crying, he had compassion on her. And his heart went out to her. And we read that he went to the, to the men and he touched the coffin. And notice what he says in Luke chapter 7, starting at the middle of verse 14. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now notice the reaction of those who were there. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This isn't secret. This is, just one, this is just one miracle of many that Jesus did that the entire nation of Israel and beyond heard about. This is days before email and Facebook and Instagram. They weren't clicking pictures of Jesus doing this. This is word of mouth testimony. Have you heard? Hey, 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 have you heard? Hey, did you hear? And the whole country came to know what Jesus did. This stuff was done in your midst. You know it yourself. Then Peter goes on in verse, by the way, not everybody liked what Jesus was doing. You remember that, right? Not everybody was happy. In fact, there was a whole lot of people, specifically people in power, who hated the theological implications of what it meant to accept Jesus having the divine authority that he had and claimed. And so they rejected him and they they, they attributed what Jesus was doing to the wicked one, but they still couldn't deny the fact that Jesus did what he said he did. The crowds believed, but not everyone did. Notice verse 23. Then Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You notice Peter's being very confrontational. He used the word, you, you killed him. Can you imagine all the room full of people, thousands of people? He's speaking to the same people, many of whom who were here 50 days earlier. Remember what happened 50 days earlier? It was Passover time. And the crowd was chanting something. You remember? They were saying, crucify him, crucify him. Guess what? Those people are in the room. The very same people who wanted Jesus crucified because they thought he was a criminal are listening to Peter, and Peter says, you killed him. Wow, where did Peter get all that guts? And then Peter says that there were two different agencies at work in the death and crucifixion of Jesus. Notice, it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That the death of Jesus Christ didn't catch God by surprise. Like God's not in heaven going, oh, I can't believe it. All these signs and wonders. I mean, what more do I have to do? I can't believe I killed him. No, no. God's up in heaven going, that's according to plan. Like before the foundation of the world, before time began, God orchestrated 
the plan of redemption for you and for me, that that event that happened on Calvary at Passover was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, orchestrated by Him for you and for me. Now, that's agency number one. Notice what he goes on to say. You crucified and killed Him by the hands of lawless men. Despite the fact that the death of Jesus Christ was the plan and will of God, the actual execution of that event occurred at the hands of the Jewish people, the Jewish authorities, the people of Jerusalem, and the Roman soldiers. Do you see what Paul is saying, what Peter is saying? That while there is a definite plan that God has and a will that God has established, it was carried out by the evil intentions of humanity. Isn't it interesting that God can take evil intentions and evil actions and use them to bring about His will and His purpose on the earth? This verse is a very beautiful verse because it shows the intersection of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God ordained it. It was His will. But He used the evil intentions of humankind to bring about His purposes. And even though it was God's will and pleasure to crush Jesus, man is still responsible for the actions that we take. And that's what this verse says. That even though it was the predestined and definite will of God, it came at the hands of evil men and women, and we are simply responsible for what we have done. And so what Peter is doing is he's pressing into his audience these very Jews who may have been there perpetrating the murder of Jesus, and he's saying, you killed him! You sent him to the cross, not because you were looking to save someone, but because you hated him. You rejected him. You missed the Messiah, God's man. And God had formerly formally certified him to you with mighty works and wonders and signs, and you missed it. God revealed Jesus' glory. The second way that God glorifies Jesus is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Notice verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you realize God overturned the action of the people? The people killed Jesus, and God overruled it. God said, I don't think so. I don't think so. But what Paul, what Peter says here is fascinating. He says, it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Do you understand what that says? It says that when death tried to swallow up Jesus, it had to spit him back out because it couldn't hold him because God loosed the pangs of death. One commentator says it this way, the abyss can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. Women who have babies, what would you say? When that baby starts to travel down the birth canal, is there any stopping it? It's easier to stop a, a semi-truck than to stop a baby who's ready to be born. Amen? Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. And that's the picture. Death could not hold him. The grave cannot keep him because God had loosed 
the pangs of death. And Jesus burst out of that grave because it could not hold him. Amen? Amen. And that's what's so beautiful about God's orchestration of events of history is that while we, humankind, killed Jesus, God had a plan. And out of the grave, Jesus rose again. And that's what Peter says here. Now, what's interesting is these Jews hadn't been taught this before like this. They believed in a resurrection, but they believed that that would happen way down in the future, way down at the end of time when God would come and the righteous would rise to new life. They believed that would happen. There was nothing in their theology that helped them understand that that event would happen to one person in the middle of history. And so in order to explain that this isn't out of character for God, Peter now reaches back into the Old Testament to a psalm, and he uses that psalm to help explain that this is not unusual. Notice verse 25. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is a quote from Psalm 16, just a portion of Psalm 16. And then Peter goes on to explain and interpret this psalm for them. Notice verse 29. Brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he should set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so Peter addresses the crowd and says, Guys, if you look at this psalm, it's a psalm of David. It's a psalm of confidence. David is full of confidence and hope, knowing that God is always before him. And because of that, his mouth, his tongue is full of singing. His body is full of joy because he knows God isn't going to just leave him in hell or leave him in Hades and allow his body to rot and decay. And Peter says, but wait a minute. We all know that David died. His tomb is, with, is still with us. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem, you can go see David's tomb. What Peter's saying is, David's body died. It's been buried. His body has decayed. It has rotted. So this psalm can't be about David. So then what is this about? You see, David was prophesying through the Spirit of God that was in him knowing that there was a descendant coming, one who was promised, a Messiah who would come, who would sit on the throne of David and rule forever and ever. Knowing that, David prophesied about this one who is to come, that the one who is going to come, his body will not be abandoned in Hades, and his body will not rot away. And so what Peter is saying is that this isn't about David at all. This is about Jesus. 
because Jesus fulfills this prophecy. You see, the tomb is empty. You can go see it. And we've seen Jesus with our very eyes. Peter says, and of this, we are all witnesses. Not just these 120 people. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. This isn't a myth or a figment of our imagination. We're not dreamers. We saw it with our eyes. We have touched and we have handled and we have seen and we have talked to Him. He is risen. Hallelujah. He has risen. God raised Jesus from the dead. And we, you and I, we can live in that same confidence. You see, while in this world we may die, we have the great confidence that death cannot hold us because one day a word of command will be given by Jesus himself and up out of the grave you and I will rise again with a new body to a new life to a new kingdom where you and I will reign forever and ever all because Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? Amen. God glorified Jesus when he raised him from the dead. The third way Jesus is glorified is because God exalted Jesus as Lord in Christ. Notice verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that is Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter here finally connects Jesus with the outpouring of the Spirit. After being raised from the dead, God didn't allow him just to walk around the earth forever. He, no, he took him up into heaven. His ascension was part of his glorification. And now Jesus is seated at the right hand, that's my right hand, this is your right hand, at the right hand of the throne of God. But the right hand isn't a chair, it isn't a location, it's a status. It means that Jesus is God's royal king who shares his glory and shares his power and shares his authority. That's what it means to be at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Peter summons another psalm, a royal psalm, a psalm of David from Psalm 110. And in it, God is speaking. God the Lord is speaking to another Lord. And here's what God is saying. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, Jesus holds the highest place of honor and authority and power and might and wisdom and glory by virtue of His incarnation, His blameless life, His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He holds the highest level of authority that is possible in the universe. He is at the right hand of the throne of God. He is both Lord and He is the Christ. As Lord, He shares God's personal name. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will give my glory to no other. But wait, how can that be when Philippians chapter 2 then says that he, Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death, 
so that God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Only Jesus gets to share the glory of God. Only Jesus gets to share the name of God. Only Jesus gets the authority of God because only Jesus is worthy. Folks, you and I serve a beautiful God. We serve a great God. Jesus is Lord. And rather than taking glory away from God the Father, when we say Jesus is Lord, it accrues and accumulates more glory to God the Father And God is blessed. God is blessed. And from that place of honor and from that place of authority, Jesus received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he did what he promised he would do. And that is, he poured it out upon his people. And for those 120 people faithfully waiting and praying in that upper room, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. There was a visible and audible indication, and there was obviously uh, the speaking in foreign languages, all of which indicated that something powerful was happening. And that same Jesus who poured out the Holy Spirit on them pours it out upon you and for me. And He will continue to pour out His Spirit upon the world until the full number of God's people are added into the kingdom of God. And God still sitting at the right hand of the Father intercedes and pours out the Spirit upon all who will call upon His name. What will you and I do with such an exalted view of Jesus? May I give you three things, and I'll close. First is, let's thank Him for the Holy Spirit. Let's thank Him for the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who had to come into this world in in a manger in Bethlehem and live a sinless life and Go to the cross. Die on that cross. Paying a penalty that was not his fault, but was yours and mine. To be buried in a tomb. To rise again on the third day. And then after 40 days, ascend into heaven. All of that was required before he could pour out the Holy Spirit upon you and me. Without a cross, there is no forgiveness. Without a resurrection, there is no hope. And without the ascension of Jesus Christ, there is no Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, there is no conviction, there is no regeneration, there is no new life. So let's thank God. Thank God for all that He did, all that He went through to get to the place where God had destined Him to be. So that in that place of power, He could pour out His Spirit upon the world to convict to challenge, to equip, and to infill us to live each and every day for Him. Secondly, let's live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's a good time here this morning to ask you, does the Holy Spirit live within you? That's simply a way of asking, have you accepted Jesus Christ as both Lord and Christ? Have you accepted the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as making payment for your sins? Have you said, yes, Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that the depth of my sin has separated me from a holy God. 
And because of what you did, you made a payment for me on my behalf that I could never do on my own. And I accept your sacrifice. I turn from my sins and I turn towards you and I promise to live for you. Would you accept me as your son or daughter? And the Bible says the moment you believe, the Holy Spirit comes to live within your heart. If you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart. And for those of you who have said yes to Jesus and no to your sin, let's live in the power of the Holy Spirit, which says, not my will, but yours be done. Not my way, but your way. So that every morning and every evening, as we live and as we breathe and as we move throughout our day, we live in the power of an Almighty God who lives through the Spirit of God in our lives. He leads us, He convicts us, He shows us the Word of God is true, and He gives glory to Jesus. May I encourage you to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, let's worship Him. And let's proclaim, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Because He is worthy, isn't He? Church, He's worthy, isn't He? But let every moment of every day be filled with the wonder and the power of a Holy Spirit living in us as He prompts us to worship Him. That our whole life brings glory to Him. That the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart worship Him. That what we do here today doesn't just stay here. That it goes out and explodes in our communities. It explodes in our homes. It explodes in our workplaces as we worship Him. And I want to do something today. Would you stand with me? They're going to put a verse up on the board. And I'd like to have us read it together. But only read it if you mean it. Only read it if Jesus is worthy alone. That he is worth it all to you. We only have one chance to do this. So if you believe it, read it with all of your might and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Ready? Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Father God, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are worthy, that you alone are worthy. There is nothing and no one that can be compared to you. You alone receive glory, and honor, and might, and blessing. You alone are worthy of our worship. Lord, none of us deserve it. Not a single one of us deserve your grace. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God that your love and your amazing grace held you to a cruel cross to rescue people like us. Wretches, lost, objects of wrath like us. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's never made that profession of faith, who's never accepted you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day where you rescue them out of the kingdom of darkness and you bring them into the kingdom of light. May today be the day of celebration here at Woodside Romeo as people are added into the kingdom of God. 
but for those of us who do love you, may we live submitted and surrendered to the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit. May we never quench him, but may we listen to his still small voice that always prompts and always leads and always guides and always shows us the beauty and the grandeur of Jesus. And may our lives be lived in worship so that the world may see what Jesus looks like through our lives and through our words and through our deeds. And we'll be careful to give you the glory in Jesus' name.